Conversations. Good day, everybody. This is Darvo here, and you have tuned into Med Conversations, Kyrgyzstan's number three best medical podcast. Thank you very much, Kyrgyzstan. Appreciate the support. My name is Beck, and I'll be here learning from Darvo today. We will be talking about management of diabetes, primarily type 2 diabetes, through the story of Bob. So, Bob. 60-year-old guy presents to his GP for a checkup. It's very unusual as a male to do that, but he's, he's good. He does that. You know that his uh, mother has diabetes and that his BMI is 28. He's a bit chubby. And so as per the American Diabetic Association guidelines, you do a screen for diabetes. His fasting blood sugar comes back at 7.5. So is that pre-diabetes or diabetes, Beck? That's diabetes itself. That's so the, the cutoff is 7 yeah, in a fasting exactly. blood sugar. You break Bob, uh, break the news to Bob? You break Bob. You break break Bob. You break Bob (laughs) with the news. Right then and there. (laughs) He's a bit disappointed, but he's a highly motivated guy. He's seen what his mum has gone through with her ulcers and the nephropathy and the neuropathy. Doesn't want to go through all that, but he's also keen to avoid some pills. So what do you do next? What's reasonable in Bob? Well, I think it would be reasonable to try a period without any pills, try some lifestyle changes. Yeah, I agree. Do two, three months of exercise and nutrition. Mm. So what are you going to be telling Bob in terms of what he should aim for? There's actually some pretty specific guidelines on what what patients with diabetes need to aim for exercise-wise. So I'd just say to do exercise and be nutritious and I'll see you again in six months, I suppose. Fair enough. What would you actually Next say slide. as a good doctor? <laughs> okay, so there are particular exercise goals in, in diabetes and they're actually quite intensive. So diabetics without any other contraindications need to do aerobic exercise at least 150 minutes a week at moderate intensity level, and then an hour and a half a week at a, or sorry, 75 minutes a week at vigorous activity level, or a combination of both. And uh, Bob needs to get jacked. He needs to be doing resistance training at least two days a week, and there should be no gaps more than two days between any of these uh, exercise periods. So nutrition-wise, so basically you need to reduce the caloric intake. You're aiming for a bit of weight loss. As I said, his BMI is 28, so kind of 5 to 10% uh, weight loss would be great. You aim for something called carbohydrate consistency, so try and consume the same amount of carbohydrates every day. So that's actually more relevant in people with uh, diabetes management with some drugs or some insulin on board because it's really hard to titrate the regime if they're swinging wildly between days of protein powder and days of gummy bears. <laughs> but it, it's a good habit for all diabetics to get into. What's the what's the name of the diet that we all love? What's the buzzword? The Mediterranean diet is the, the mm. famous one. So that's the one where there's less than 50% of the diet comprised of complex carbohydrates and more than 30% mono and polyunsaturated fat. So as I think of it, instead of eating two pieces of bread, eat one piece of bread and dunk Gas it in. it in olive exa- oil. Exactly, exactly. So there is a little bit of uh, evidence to suggest that it's helpful. So in one study, patients were randomly assigned to the Mediterranean diet and were less likely to require antihyperglycemic drugs, 44 versus 70%. And they also had some weight loss, 2 kilograms after a year, although that normalized after two years. So back to Bob. He comes back three months later. He's been dutiful. He's been to the gym. His uh, his bench press has improved, and he can run much further. And uh, he's run out of olive oil at home. However, his HbA1c is still 7.4%. What do you do? So at this stage, you need to, unfortunately, tell him, break him again and tell him <laughs> his, his failed lifestyle. Um, 
uh, modifications and, and now we actually do need to start adding some medications. Time to succumb to Western medicine. So which drug do we go for? We go for metformin. That's that's what we pretty much uniformly recommend as the first drug in diabetics and even some pre-diabetics can get themselves some metformin. There's some evidence that that is beneficial. How does metformin work? What's What class of drug is it? So it's a big one-eyed and that's one of the insulin sensitizers, but actually the primary way that it works is by preventing hepatic gluconeogenesis. Yeah, and there are some contraindications to the metformin. So have a look at the guidelines when you prescribe it. Specifically, look out for the failures. Look out for renal heart or liver failure and think twice about prescribing it, particularly if it's really severe in any of those cases. And you may need to dose adjust rather than see it as a, a total um, compli- um, contraindication. Mm. So Bob returns, his HbA1c is still 7.5%. And he asks you, doctor, like, I know that my sugars are a bit high, but what's the big deal? Like, I don't have any complications. I feel fine. Is he on the right track? Should we just let him go into the community with a HbA1c of 7.5%? Well, there's a there's sort of a, a narrow window of opportunity where, where if you act now, you can reduce his macrovascular complication rate in the future. So, yeah, there's been a bunch of large clinical trials, the UKPDS, the ACCORD trial, the ADVANCE trial, the VADT, a bunch of acronyms that have all basically shown that it's really beneficial for their cardiovascular mortality rate to get on top of that blood sugar could control early. Blood sugar could control is a special kind. (laughs) Microvascular complications, it's always beneficial to have improved blood sugar control. But the the macrovascular, the strokes, the heart attacks, etc., that's uh, the horse can really bolt there. You've got to get on top of it early. And the interesting thing with these trials is a period of intensive control early, even if they go back to less intensive control later, still has downstream beneficial effects for their health. So this is this is the window of opportunity for Bob. This is why we need really good GPs because a good GP here will make a much bigger difference to Bob's health than any surgeon ever will. All right. So Bob comes back, as I said, still 7.5%. And what do you do next? You've got the metformin. So first of all, I should say you could increase the metformin dose. But if you're thinking of adding another drug, what would would be the usual choice? So typically we would add glycoside at this point. So that's one of the sulfonylureas. I heard that pronunciation. (laughs) Maybe. So glycoside is a good one. It's uh, effective. It's cheap. It does come with the side effects of some weight gain and the risk of hypoglycemia. Why is that? How does it work? It increases insulin secretion. Yeah, that's right. So there's some other options. So insulin, some people go for straight after the metformin, fail that, go to insulin. And you think about it, particularly when the HbA1c is very high, because insulin is your most effective option. Of course, you can have hypos, and you can also have weight gain, or you usually have weight gain. If you do go with insulin, you don't start with a short acting, you start with a basal insulin, the Lantus, the insulin, Glargine. And typically, you start at initial doses of 0.1 to 0.3 units per kilogram. If cost is uh, less of an issue, there are some really sexy new drugs you can use. And a lot of these have to do with uh, this hormone called incretin or hormones called incretins. So they are GLP-1 and GIP. Incretins do three things. They slow gastric emptying, they suppress glucagon secretion, and they increase satiety. And we have two drugs that act on that kind of system. First, we have the GLP-1 receptor agonist, so that's exanatide, and they actually came from Gila monsters. Gila monsters. (laughs) Which is pretty cool, I think, from that really cool lizard I used to like as a kid. 
and they do those things. So they, they act on the receptor that these incretins act on. So they do all those things. They slow gastric emptying, they suppress glucagon secretion, they increase satiety. They do have some side effects. Uh, they have some nausea, vomiting, sometimes pancreatitis. But this is one of the two drugs, metformin being the other one, uh, that actually can cause some weight loss. So that's really good in a lot of diabetes patients, obviously, if they've got metabolic syndrome. So the other one, DPP-4 inhibitors, they also act on the incretin system. How do they work? So the typical example here is citagliptin. And what they do is they break, uh, they prevent the breakdown of those incretins, both of them, the GLP-1 and the GIP. Yeah. And and they act in a very similar way. They they slow gastric emptying, suppress glucagon secretion, increase satiety, and additionally they also increase the secretion of insulin. And interestingly, we said that the other one causes weight loss, but DPP-4 inhibitors don't do that. They have a neutral effect on weight. Mm. So the other one of the new drugs that is commonly used, but less so than the other ones, is the thiazolidinediones, so rosiglitazone or pioglitazone. So these guys work by increasing the peripheral uptake of glucose. And the way they do that is they uh, make adipocytes uh, keep all their fatty acids, so there's less fatty acids um, floating around. So other cells, when they want energy, they have to use up their glucose. These drugs are great because there's a minimal risk of hypoglycemia, but they do increase weight. So that's a bit of a shame. So keeping all that in mind, though, we decided to put Bob on glyclozide. So Bob comes back again. He's on glyclozide and metformin, but uh, his HbA1c is still in the low 7s. Can you add another drug or do you have to go for insulin at this point? So at this point, you can add another drug, be that insulin or another oral hypoglycemic agent, but the limit is three drugs. Before you need to put someone on insulin. Most people would put someone on insulin before that, but you can do three drugs without it. So he comes back again after that. He's on three drugs. It's time for insulin. Um, and what do you go for? So you go for basal insulin, as we said before, but if you need something additional to that for more control, what are the two kind of regimens that we can use back so you can either use basal bolus or you can use a multi-component BD mixed insulin injections. Yeah, so basal bolus is the insulin glage in the lantus at night or the morning. That lasts for 24 hours and then before each meal you have a short-acting insulin. However, that leads to four injections. It does give you a lot more flexibility with your sugar and it's a much more powerful way of controlling your sugar. So that's the preferred method in type 1s where we need really tight control for a long time. In type 2 diabetics, that is often still the preferred method, but you can if you want to. If your patient's a bit elderly and they find complicated regimes difficult or if they don't want to inject themselves four times a day, you can do twice daily injections of mixed insulin. Uh, So that's protamine insulin plus a short-acting insulin. And it's two-thirds of the total daily insulin in the morning and one-third at night. And that uh, two-thirds in the morning... About two-thirds of that is long-acting and one-third is short-acting. And the one-third in the evening, one-half is long-acting and one-half is short-acting. If that went over your head, don't worry about it. That You can just look it up in the <laughs> guidelines. You don't necessarily need to memorize all that. But that's that's the basic idea. But as I said, not as powerful as the basal bolus regime. All right, so back to Bob. So we finally got on top of his uh, sugar control and his lifestyle is pretty good. What else do we have to worry about in a patient like Bob? So diabetes is one of the cardiovascular risk factors. So you need to manage the other cardiovascular risk factors and also the comorbidities that may be going along with his diabetes. Mm. And we also need to screen for complications. So the macrovascular and microvascular, the three and three rule, what are the three of each? So the microvascular complications are 
retinopathy, nephropathy, and peripheral neuropathy. And the macrovascular? So that would be your strokes, your ischemic heart disease, and peripheral vascular disease. Yeah. So thinking about the comorbidities, there's three drugs that you should think about putting Bob on. So that's a statin, an aspirin, and an ACE inhibitor. So should be uh, should Bob be on a statin? Well, you just told me he should, so I'm going to go with yes. Pretty much everyone with diabetes should, even if the cholesterol is normal because they have such a high cardiovascular risk. And even if the cholesterol is normal, you're going to reduce that risk by 30%. So anyone that's over 40 years and has at least one other cardiovascular risk factor plus diabetes deserves a statin. All right, so should Bob be on aspirin? Yes, and it's a similar story here as well. So aspirin should be considered in people who are over the age of 50 with diabetes plus one other cardiovascular risk factor. So that's things like smoking, hypertension, obesity, albuminuria, dyslipidemia, or a family history of cardiovascular disease. So pretty much all patients with diabetes type 2 should be on aspirin and a statin. And the final drug we mentioned was an ACE inhibitor. So there's two reasons you'd put someone on an ACE inhibitor. What are they, back? So firstly, hypertension. So the goals for hypertension have shifted a little bit. When I was a medical student, I always got taught it's more aggressive. You've got to aim for about 130 on 80. But that's now changed to we're happy with 140 or 90 or less. So there, some studies came out that showed there wasn't much benefit to being really aggressive. And there's always a side effect of you know, falls and drug side effects if you're too aggressive with these drugs. And the other indication for an ACE inhibitor, Beck? Microalbuminate. I'll try again. Microalbuminuria. <laughs> nice one. <laughs> so would a urine dipstick be a good test for that? No, that's why it's called microalbuminuria. So a dipstick will only pick up when the albumin is over 300 milligrams of albumin per, per gram of creatinine. Okay, so that's macro. Yeah, exactly. Or 300 milligrams of albumin per 24 hours. So it's really annoying to collect someone's urine for 24 hours. I don't know if you've tried it. It's pretty hard. So what we do is we create a ratio between the albumin and the creatinine as a rough estimate of that. Mm, It's not that rough, actually. It's actually a pretty good marker for it. Proxy proxy measurement. Exactly. So that nicely leads us into the next part of our management of Bob. So that's thinking about complications. So why is microalbuminuria important? It's important because it's a marker of diabetic nephropathy. If you have microalbuminuria, your risk of progression to macroalbuminuria, so over 300 milligrams per 24 hours or per gram of creatinine, is 50% over the next 10 years. In type 1 diabetics. Yeah, but it, people assume that it also refers to type 2s. Okay. And if you have macroalbuminuria, then you have a, a pretty high chance of getting to dialysis or end-stage renal failure in the next 10 years, so 50% in the next 10 years as well. So that's why it's important that we pick it up. And the reason ACE inhibitors are good for it, but can you just explain the physiology of that? So what angiotensin 2 normally does is constrict the efferent arterial. So that's going to increase the pressure in the glomerulus and squeeze out those proteins. Exactly. The albumin. So an ACE inhibitor prevents that action from occurring. So it decreases the pressure in the glomerulus. I'm sure squeezing isn't the technical term for what's going on here. We'll go there. No, that's a beautiful explanation. Exactly. And we also know that in from trials, we haven't just gone on the biological basis. There was a big trial called the Benedict trial with 1,200 patients where people had a high blood pressure and then they were either assigned to an ACE inhibitor, a calcium channel blocker, a combination of both or placebo. And the two groups with ACE inhibitors had a progression to microalbuminuria of 6 and 5.7% respectively. And then 
the groups with uh, just verapamil or placebo were 11.9 and 10%. So the rate of progression to microalbuminuria or increased albuminuria was about half. So pretty good. So that's why we do that. Uh, moving on to other complications in Bob. So we've, we've thought about his um, kidneys. We've done the microalbuminuria test. He's still okay there. And his renal function's fine. So what else do we need to think about, about complications? What else do we need to screen for? So we have to look at their feet. So the, di the feet are kind of the endpoint of lots of different pathologies in diabetics. Uh, for example, neuropathy, that will often result in um, bad feet in diabetics. Or if they have peripheral vascular disease, their ulcers that they get from the neuropathy won't heal. So it's really important to look at it. And every time someone with diabetes comes into your practice, particularly if they're old, you need to have a, just a rough look at the feet, take off their shoes and make sure there's nothing too nasty going on. And that's because 30% of older people can't actually inspect their feet, even if they wanted to. Staggering. Not really, though. <laughs> no. I don't think that's, that's, that's I think that's surprising. I think that's surprising. They can probably sit to the top of their feet, depending <laughs> on obesity. It's probably a good predictive factor for their prognosis. Probably. Can you see your feet? There's a study in that, if anyone, anyone's interested. <laughs> Um, so, so you should look at the feet every every appointment, just any opportunity you have because of that. But they need to get a good, um, proper uh, examination about once a year with a podiatrist. So you've got to look at the skin to make sure that it has its integrity intact. You've got to look for peripheral artery disease, so feel those peripheral pulses and then do the ankle brachial index. And then you've got to just check for diabetic neuropathy. So you always got to use the monofilament, which is the fine touch modality. And then you've got to go one other modality as well. So that's tuning fork, pinprick sensation, or ankle reflexes. So what do you do if, you, if someone has... Why, why are we bothered? Is that going to change management if we find any problems? So I suppose there's two things. One, it's an indicator that the blood sugar control is probably inadequate. Exactly, and secondly, yeah. we can treat the actual problem. So... There might be a diabetic ulcer there that requires some debridement or even a, a vac dressing, some negative pressure. They might need a podiatrist to help with mechanical offloading through particular shoes or other um, sort of prosthetics. And if there's severe peripheral vascular disease, they may need revascularization. Yeah, exactly. All right, so we've looked at his kidneys, we've looked at his feet. The last one is diabetic retinopathy. We need to have a look at his eyes. So in patients with type 1 diabetes, you don't bother checking for this straight away. You wait five years because it takes time. But if someone has type 2 diabetes, you've got to start checking right away because they might have had diabetes for 5, 10 years. It doesn't present as dramatically as type 1. So you've got to make sure they don't have something right away. Mm -hmm. And then if you find nothing, you don't need to check it every year. That's probably overkill, but then every two to three years, you should still check it. So what do you find? What are the buzzwords? Listen up, MCQ, buzzword hunters. There's a few good ones in here that you should look out for. Okay, so first of all, there's the non-proliferative retinopathy, which precedes the proliferative retinopathy. So yeah. if we start with that non-proliferative um, picture, you get some retinal thickening from macular edema, some infarcts, and here are the buzzwords right here. Uh, the infarcts can result in cotton wool spots or soft exudates. Yeah. They can also get hard exudates or hemorrhages. It's all basically because diabetes results in retinal ischemia, which results in these changes. And the retinal ischemia, the body responds as an adaptive response. It's a good response, but ultimately damage da um, causes damage with neovascularization. So you've screwed up the blood vessels you had, so the body's like, you know what, I'm going to make some new ones. But they're pretty crappy, so that comes with its own kind of problems. These vessels rupture easily, they cause vitreous hemorrhage, they cause fibrosis, and kind of the end stage is retinal detachment. 
There's one particular thing that we've got to look for when we're checking the eyes, not, not us, unless you're an ophthalmologist, but someone needs to look for, and that's macular edema. You look for that with a fluorescein angiography or OCT, optical coherence tomography. And uh, the reason it's important, because if you've got macular edema, you've got a 25% chance of moderate visual loss over the next three years, so that's pretty bad. Mm, and, and you can treat it. Yeah, exactly. So it does change management. So you can give them some focal laser photocoagulation and antivascular endothelial growth factor therapy. So good. All right, so back to Bob. He's uh, come come back a few years later. You've kind of rationalized his medications. He's not on four different uh, agents now. He's just on metformin and he's with a basal bolus insulin regime, 40 units of lattice in the morning and 10 units of Nova Rapid pre-meals. You look at it, he's a good patient, Bob. He's got the little BSL book and he, he, he fills it out diligently, hands it to you, and you, you see the sugars have been around 9 pre-lunchtime. So do you, do, you, do you just increase the sugars at lunchtime? That makes sense, right? To increase his sugars at lunchtime? Yeah, I mean, get him to have a piece <laughs> of cake after his... Right, in, in, increase the insulin at lunchtime, sorry, I mean. No, so so what you need to do is go back to the insulin dose that was given before that high blood sugar reading. Yeah. So if he's got sugars of nine pre lunchtime and the target, if we keep that in mind, is four to seven, yeah. then we need to change the breakfast the breakfast insulin. So that needs to be increased by ten to twenty percent. So that's a, that's a good rule of thumb. Whenever you're on the wards or wherever else and someone's looking um, at the insulin chart and they're like, look, they're running a bit high or they're running a bit low. You don't drastically change things. You just kind of change it by 10 to 20% each time, each day. You can titrate it one way or another, or give it a few days, rather. So going back to Bob, so he comes back a little while later, and you've uh, controlled the pre-meal BSLs. They all look nice, but you've done a HbA1c, and even though those pre-meal BSLs have been around the 6s or at least under 7, uh, the HbA1c is 8%, and it's been three months as well, so this is in a week of control. This has been months of control and his HbA1c is still too high. It's 8%. So what, what do you do next? So now you now that you know that the pre-meal BSLs are okay, you start getting post-meal, post-prandial sugars, one or two hours after a meal. Exactly. And that will help you titrate things around which meal. Which meal is it that needs a little bit of extra insulin? However, you take it too far, you tighten up Bob's control too much. And uh, you look at his BSL book the next time he comes in, and he's hitting the threes pretty often. He's hypoglycemic. He tells you he's fine, though. He says, oh, like, I like, I don't, haven't had any falls. So I don't feel, I don't get the shakes. What's a big deal? So it's an important conversation to have with the patient as well. Do they notice when they're hypoglycemic? Because that's a poor prognostic sign if they're getting hypoglycemic unawareness. So mm. you need to see if you can fix that. Mm. So what you do when someone's been hypoing like that and they haven't haven't even noticed, first of all, you look at their medications because if they're on a beta blocker and they don't need to be, that'll help because beta blockers prevent that sympathetic activation and they may not notice their hypos. And the other thing is you do, you just let them run high for a few weeks. So you, you let the BSLs kind of run between 8 and 11 for a couple of weeks and hopefully that will get the sense of hypoglycemia back after that. I didn't know that. It's interesting. So mm. it just resets them. Yeah, resets. Resets the meter. So you're a great primary care physician, and all on your own you managed to get Bob to his 80s without too many complications. He's living at home. He doesn't have any nasty ulcers. All things are great. Comes in again, HbA1c 7.5%. He's 83 at this stage. What do you do next? Do you tighten a bit more, increase the, the basal insulin, have a close look at the BSL chart, start another drug, pancreas, no. do you mean your pancreas transplant? What's happening? It's a I thing. No, so, so I think the 
the target in older patients becomes a little bit less restrictive. So less than 8% is fine because the concern here is more the risk of hypoglycemia than any long-term effects of hyperglycemia. So I'd probably shake his hand and tell him I'd see him again next time. Sounds good. All right, so that's it. That's that's a, a rough overview of diabetes through the story of Bob. Thanks very much for listening, particularly Thanks, the Kyrgyzstan guys. I like it. See Bye. You later.